I'm going to read from Job chapter 28 in the English Standard Version. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore and gloom, deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, the lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So we thank God for his word to us and we thank him for Peter who's going to come and explain it to us. Peter, can I pray for you before you come? Lord God, we thank you for Peter and we pray that you will be with him and with us as we deep, deep things. May your Holy Spirit enlighten us all. In Jesus' name.
Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil, understanding. Let me take you to a, a dark place. So dark, in fact, that I, I could not even see my hand in front of my face. <laughs> the ex-marine leading our party asked us all to switch off our helmet lamps. And in a, a great cavern, about the size of this church, hundreds of feet underground, no light shone. That dark. Mind you, after paddling a rubber boat across the flooded gallery and the zip wire, not to mention abseiling down a cliff, it was nice to stop for a moment, even in the dark. And I was asking myself, should a portly, elderly pastor really have been gallivanting in the depths of an abandoned Welsh slate mine. That was the dark place. Trespassing where generations of Welsh miners had delved deep in the earth for the grey gold, as they called it. The slate that had actually roofed three in four houses in Europe in the 19th century. When we switched on our lamps, the guide told us how the slate had been won. Using only candle lights, small groups of miners, families, who had paid a lot of money for a concession from the mine owner, used a, a sort of long steel rod with a sharp end and a hammer to drill a small hole in what looked like promising slate. And then they'd fill the hole with gunpowder and put a fuse in. And this primitive charge was then exploded to bring down the slate. Chillingly, this most dangerous job was always carried out by a young boy. He would light the fuse and then run through pitch darkness back to where the men stood in safety. Why a young boy? Well, they were quick and they were expendable. It took a long time to train a, a slate miner and a the families were large. You could replace them. And many were caught as the rock fell. It became clear to me that these mines had been places of fear and pain for hundreds of vulnerable youngsters over the three centuries in which they were mined. Truly, dark places 
Job is, of course, a very dark book. By the time we get to its 28th chapter, we have witnessed Job's descent into a profound darkness. As God, first of all, allows him to be tested to the point of destruction by the accuser, the Satan, who, in this point in Scripture, isn't the great ruler um, of the earthly demons who is God's enemy, but here seems to function as his sort of prosecution counsel. Under Satan's kosh, Job loses everything that makes life seem worth living. Worse follows. He must endure, in the book, three great cycles of debate with his friends, who are in a different sort of darkness to Job himself. At least he knows that he has done nothing wrong. But they think that this must have come upon him because he's a sinner. He must have done something horrible to lose health and wealth and children. They blunder around in an unenlightened way and in so doing add to his woes. And this great 28th chapter puts the arguments for the moment on hold. We step back to think, well, what is wisdom itself? Just as so often in the book of Proverbs, we're offered... um, a sort of picture of what, it, what it's like to gain wisdom. We are told that in order to find precious things, gold, gems, copper, iron, humans have learned how to descend into dark places and mine for them. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Man puts an end to darkness, searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in deep gloom and darkness. And the book suggests that this mining is a powerful picture of how we learn about the world. That the sort of wisdom that humanity values a great deal can be compared to mining, to going down into the dark places and recovering from there the hidden things to bring them to light. Now, one great recent commentator on the book, Professor Tom McLeish, fellow of the Royal Society, who is a top-flight British physicist with many discoveries to his credit, but I had the privilege of meeting him. He introduced himself to me as a, a professor of the physics of slime. Yeah, he, his speciality is those materials which are neither solid nor liquid in between. He's made many important discoveries in the field. He's also a faithful Christian who, in his wonderful book, Faith and Wisdom in Science, argues that Job 28 gives a picture of what it is to do science. For him, science, like mining, involves bringing to light treasures of knowledge, hidden, buried, until found, discovered by the researcher. 
Now, as a non-scientist, I'm, I'm moved and impressed by McLeish's vision. His insistence that wonder, curiosity, indeed imagination and faith are at the heart of science. Not a message you hear very often, is it? I commend his book to you, Faith and Wonder in Science, Professor Tom McLeish, or Google him and his recent Boyle Lecture. But I don't think that he's doing justice to everything that Job 28 says. Yes, we humans can find out amazing things about this wonderful, astonishing cosmos in which we are. We can come to truth by mining, by a scientific method and other ways of inquiring. And McLeish does talk about the difficulties in science, the false trails that lead nowhere, the experiments that, that fail. But he downplays, I think, something very profound about where we find wisdom, where Job, in the end, finds wisdom. Yeah, the good learning outcomes, they're covered. But what about the times when we are just at our wits' end? When we're so perplexed and puzzled and confused by what's going on in our lives, when it all seems utterly chaotic and dark, How do we get wise then? How on earth do we find a way forward? And Job 28, 20, which I opened, let me remind you, goes on to say that true wisdom is hidden so deep that no simply human inquiry can get to it. We can't dig deep enough. Is hidden from the eyes of the living, concealed even from the birds of the air. Even the falcon, with all its amazing vision, cannot see wisdom. It's buried too deep. If we are so very wise to our human knowledge, how come that the world is in such a mess, huh? How come the heart of this great continent, with all its universities and its schools and its learning, the very heart of it is ripped apart by red war? If we're so clever. Indeed, you know, the science we have done, this profound understanding we have come to, one of the things it's done is put into our hands weapons so powerful that they could kill us all. We have brought many things to light through our cleverness, our mining. We have also buried other things and... We may end up burying ourselves unless the Lord Jesus returns, for which I pray daily. Come, Lord Jesus, into this mess. We are made.
One of the things that we bury are deep issues of justice. I've read Job 28 many, many times and picked up that language of mining. But now when I read it, I cannot get out of my head those little boys in the darkness of the slate mines running for their lives as the fuses spluttered behind them. This is why true wisdom, as Matt reminded us so powerfully, you hadn't read my sermon, had you, Matt? Not yet, but you were there, my friend. Why true wisdom cannot ignore what Paul calls that word of the cross, which is folly to those who are perishing, to the scholar and the scientist, unless he knows Jesus. She knows Jesus. That word which is all about God entering in Christ into the darkness of our ignorance and bringing to light out of that darkness and sin precious things. Indeed, a renewed humanity and a renewed creation bringing them up into his glorious light and then sharing what he has discovered through the proclamation of the gospel. You know the hymn? Light of the world, you step down into darkness, opened my eyes, made me see. Christ, the Word, has brought us the Word of Wisdom through His coming among us in His flesh and then sharing with us through His teaching ministry which goes on through the Holy Spirit. True wisdom. And we can find that wisdom, maybe we only find it in the dark places. Because Christ has dug deep into human sin and wickedness without yielding an inch to it, even when they killed him for his pains. Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it, or even, another translation, comprehended it, Darkness doesn't get the light, but the light gets the darkness. Those who, as Job 28, 28 puts it, fear the Lord can find in that fear the beginning of true wisdom and turn away from the darkness. What might that mean in a human life? Let me give two examples. One rather old, one rather new. For the first, I have to take you to another dark place. (laughs) 
24 Grosvenor Square in London. Heart of the most prosperous, richest part of that rich and powerful city. In 1801, a young boy was born in 24 Grosvenor Square. 1801, beginning of the 19th century. His name was Anthony Ashley Cooper. And his father, the sixth Earl of Shaftesbury, was one of the richest and most powerful people in Britain. He lacked nothing materially, that young boy, as he grew up. But actually his life was a dark one. As his biographer best puts it, Ashley grew up without any experience of parental love. His father was too busy at the gambling table. His mother was too busy with her friends. He saw little of his parents, best goes on, and when duty or necessity compelled them to take notice of him, they were formal and frightening. Yet in the fear and darkness of that neglected young boy's life, a light shone. It was held by a servant, the housekeeper. Her name was Maria Mills, and she reached out to that lonely, unhappy boy with love and care. Christian care. Best again. What did touch Ashley was the reality and the homely practicality of the love which her Christianity made Maria feel towards the unhappy child. She told him Bible stories. She taught him to pray. They sent him away to a miserable boarding school. But even there, the light did not fail him. When on his father's death, Ashley took his seat in the House of Lords, he began to dig deep into the darkness of Victorian England. He piloted through parliaments bills to improve the treatment of the mentally ill, to ban child labour in the factories. And then, in 1842, he introduced the Mines and Collieries Act which outlawed the employment of women and children underground. When, after much resistance from the mine owners and their allies, allies in Parliament, it became law, those little boys in the Welsh slate mines no longer had to run for their lives. That little frightened boy found another sort of fear. One that is wholly good. 
that puts us in right relationship with an awesome God, holy, just, holy, loving, holy, holy. Since it's Trinity Sunday, holy, holy, holy. He learned to fear that wise God to whom the darkness and the light are both alike, who knows all things seen and unseen. One of our hymns puts it, Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. If you, if you and I fear God, then we have nothing else to fear. What can the tyrant do to us? Kill us? Torture us? After that comes life eternal. Can they shame us and ridicule us? Those who honor God, he honors. Let me take you to a third dark place where someone in our own day dug deep to find the moral courage to bring light into darkness. Because she feared God. Guantanamo Bay is the detention facility, let's call it jail. In Cuba, where the United States detains people it suspects of involvement in terrorism. In 2004, a new staff member, Dr. Jennifer Bryson, arrived to lead the team tasked with interrogating those suspects in the jail, about one in four, who came from Saudi Arabia. She was moved by deep patriotism in the aftermath of the horrible attacks of 9-11 on New York. Arabist, spoke fluent Arabic, knew Yemen and Saudi Arabia well. The first thing that the experienced interrogators, her existing colleagues, told her was, Saudis don't talk. In the previous year, the existing team had not been able to file one single report in an interrogation which would add something to what the US authorities already knew, especially about forthcoming attacks. One of the first things she was asked to do was sign off on interrogation plans submitted by her team members asking permission to use what is euphemistically called enhanced interrogation techniques. These included continuous strobe lights in the interrogation rooms, deafening music, sleep deprivation, long periods of solitary confinement. In a word, Torture. Mild torture, but torture. She refused all such requests. Though she came under increasing pressure to agree. Instead, she insisted 
the interrogators stick with the US military's guidelines for such matters, which recommend that the interrogators build up what's called rapport with those interrogated. That is, without condoning what they are accused of doing, their opinions, to build a relationship with them, in which those interrogated relax, and perhaps not even what they are realizing what they're doing, divulge information. Her refusal to add to the darkness of a place which was dark enough already was actually, on a practical level, highly successful. Under her leadership, the Saudi team became the most productive in Guantanamo and many lives were saved by the information that was gained. However, even if that had not been the case, Bryson insists that she would not have agreed to torture because she feared God. She dug down into her conscience and what she found there was the wisdom and the light of Christ. That wisdom forbade her from taking a path that would not have harmed only the victims of torture, but, in her judgment, also those who used such methods, who, as she points out, would one day have to stand before God and account for their actions. As, of course, we all will have to stand before God and account for our actions. And if, as I believe, those who plead in that judgment hall, the mercies of Christ will be saved, yet we will all be brought to remember what we have done. And maybe we'll be saved as if by fire, What are the dark places in our own lives? Where are the darkness which we sometimes dwell? For Bryson, it was a prison. For us, it could be our workplace. Or even our home. Perhaps our bedroom when we wake in the night, oppressed by doubts and fears. We may live today in a world where it seems the darkness is rising with power and hideous strength. Where famine, disaster, wars, rumors of war, But God forgive us, millions of young lives are ended even before they see the light. Yet because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it, those places of darkness, of fear and pain, 
where cruelty, violence and evil can seem so real, maybe just where we can mine wisdom and find new courage to do what is right. No place seemed darker than Golgotha. Yet there the light of the world shone most brightly. Someone else has been reading my sermon notes. Are we ready to follow Jesus? No turning back. Down into the darkness of the world and of the human heart, including our own heart, to mine even there. Precious things. What is more, to find there the light that shines and has never been overcome nor ever will until it rises in full might and the shadows flee away. Sisters and brothers, let us pray. Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, good Lord, and by thy great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of the night, for the sake of thy only Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.